ready. Shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Brutal Planet right here on Yeshiva Radio. My name is Christopher Fredrickson, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be with each and every single one of you here today. One of the things that we're going to be getting into here today is how it is that I, you know, people are always coming to me asking about different translations. They're always asking me, what is the best translation for me to get? And um, one of the things that you see here, if you're watching the video version as opposed to the audio version, you'll see that I have tons of Bibles right here on the desk with me. And these are many of the ones in which it is that I use. And many of you who watch the uh, videos or you listen to the audio teachings or you read the articles that I've written... The thing that you'll see is that I don't stick to just one text whenever it is that I'm going and quoting um, a passage from the Bible. You'll see that I'll constantly be going through many, many different ones. And so one of the things that we're going to be talking about here today is why that is. And also we're going to be talking about base text and also textual criticism and the chronology of text. This is something that has become a hot-button issue because I've seen many different teachers going and uh, propagating much later documents. Because they are written in a certain language, they feel that as though they are ancient and that they are the oldest because of the language in which it is used. But however, this is not only the case. One of the things I often end up seeing is that people will go and say, you know, go and quote something, and then they'll say, well, this is the word that was used here— and then I'll go and ask about it and say, well, uh, which codex did you get that from? Because one of the things that we have to understand is that none of the biblical codexes, not every single one of them, are exactly the same. There's a lot of variance in quite a few of them, and this is why it is that when you have, take for instance, the Mesoretic text, which a majority of Bibles are translated from in terms of the Tanakh or the Old Testament— the thing about it, though, is that there is a uh, com compilation of things from the Aleppo and the Leningrad and several others. And so what we're going to be talking about here first is the chronology of base text and how it is that even later texts, later documents are also helpful. First of all, whenever it is that people talk about base text, we can't just simply say, well, in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic or in the Greek, or in the Latin. We can't just simply do that. Why? Well, take the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, for example. There are over 10,000 documents of the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, that are written in Hebrew. Over 10,000, and many different Bible uh, publishers and translators will use different ones. And they range not only from the time of, like, you know, the uh, uh, before the time of Yeshua, around two, uh, 20 BCE, all the way up until about the 1800s is where a majority of these texts come from. But they're all written in the same language. The same is true for Aramaic, as a matter of fact. We have over 3,000 Aramaic documents of the Bible, some exclusively for the New Testament, some exclusively for the Old Testament. And these range from around the same time, as a matter of fact. And, you know, um, then you also have, for instance, the various Greek and Latin texts that also span throughout a variety of, of uh, for a huge span of history. And so the thing about it, though, is that we then have, we then say to ourselves, well, we want the oldest, but the thing about it, though, is that sometimes uh, 
the oldest is not going to be necessarily complete. Sometimes people propagate things as being the oldest, especially online, and they're not necessarily the oldest. Some things don't even exist. You take, for instance, there is a modern movement that is happening today where it is that people are gravitating towards what is known as Paleo-Hebrew. And the fact is that we don't have a single biblical document written in Paleo-Hebrew. But yet, you will find uh, publishers such as the Eight Sefer, as well as the Besorah of, Yehu of uh, some variation of, of Yeshua, I forget exactly uh, how that was written out and all that stuff. They claim that their texts are written and translated from a Paleo-Hebrew uh, base text, but there is not a single one in existence. As a matter of fact, several months ago, probably even about a year ago, I spoke about this particular thing, and I said I would I would give a thousand dollars to anybody who can go and supply me with base text or evidence of a base text that is written in Paleo Hebrew, and you know, hundred and fifty thousand listeners every single week. I still have yet to have anybody go and collect that $1,000 because one does not simply exist. This, in many ways, is a marketing ploy. Now, we also have other texts as well that some people frown upon because of the language in which it is written in, and they frown upon it because of when it was written. Now, the thing about it, though, is that the thing that we have to understand is that first of all, whenever it comes to biblical text, throughout generations and throughout millennia, there are always individuals who will go and translate something or they will go and uh, put make a new text. They will go and make a, a new text of the book of Isaiah or the, or the book of John or the book of Revelation or the book of Genesis or what have you. And what's going to end up happening is you are going to get a footprint on those in terms of the theology that a person from this particular sect had at that time. The same is true with translations as well. One of the Bibles that I have over here on my desk over here is this one right here. It is the Gudnik Homish. Now, the Gudnik Homish is a very interesting one because of the fact that on the right-hand side of the page— we have the Masoretic text within Hebrew, which is used for a majority of Bible translations. We'll get into what makes up the Masoretic text here in a little bit. But then, in terms of the translation, on the left-hand side, what we have there is a translation from the Aramaic Targums. Now, the Aramaic Targums, first of all, are older than the Masoretic text but not necessarily the base texts that make up the Masoretic text. But the thing that the, that the Aramaic Targums do, which is absolutely phenomenal, is there will be certain things within parentheses that basically to help you understand uh, what the interpretation was of this at that time. You take, for instance, say that there was a verse saying, um, and Christopher went into his dining room. Well, what did Christopher go in his dining room for? What, was, what would be the interpretation of that? If that were scripture, what would be the interpretation for that? They would have in parentheses, to eat. 
you know, to basically, you know, to kind of help help you along and better understand the text from the vantage point in which the Targums were written. Now, the Targums were actually written before the times of Yeshua. Now, so therefore, do we say that, you know, first of all, that our base text should be the Aramaic, the Targumim, of that of the Tanakh? Not necessarily, but they are very helpful. They are very helpful in terms of scholarship and also pinpointing theology at the time. You take, for instance, within that of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, within the Targumim, one of the things that we end up seeing within there is that, first of all, though in the Hebrew we have the word Ha'alma, the young maiden or the young woman, but in the Targumim, they relate that to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, where we have the word le marbe that has a closed mem, a mem sofit, within the word le marbe, which signifies a closed womb, where there should be an open mem there. And so, they, therefore, they end up putting in the Aramaic Targumim, where Ha'alma is within that of uh, the Hebrew, in the Masoretic, in the Aleppo, and the Leningrad. They end up putting Betola, which is the Aramaic word for virgin as opposed to young maiden. So we see that during that time that Judaism agreed with that of other documents such as the Greek Septuagint that also render the word virgin. And that was the oldest halakha in terms of how it is that that is to be interpreted based upon the Aramaic Targums, because it kind of has that little bit of commentary within it. Not necessarily adding to nor taking away from the Bible, but basically going and amplifying it, much in the same way that the Amplified Bible that many Christians use today is often treated. It, it, off, it does the exact same thing. Now, the thing that is amazing about Greek, and I, now, first of all, as a Lapid Jew, I always look to Chazel. Now, Chazel says within Tractate Sota, within the Talmud, they say, cursed is any man who raises swine, and cursed is any man who teaches his son Greek or Greek wisdom. Now, that's not necessarily Halakha, because that is in the Gemara section of the Talmud, but at the same time, we have an understanding of the mindset here. Now, what is the reason for this mindset before it is that we just go and trash Greek and say, you know what, we don't need to worry about Greek. We don't want anything to do with the Greek. And the fact is that many of your Hebrew roots or uh, Messianic or Lapid translations will actually come from a Greek New Testament a great deal of the time. So do we absolutely throw out Greek? Chashvi, shalom, God forbid. But let us understand why it is that the sages said such a thing. Because of the fact that during the times in which the Talmud was being assembled, especially the Gemara section, we were under Roman occupation. There was this Hellenized view that was being pushed upon the Jewish people. We find this within that of the Book of Maccabees. We find it within that of the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament and we find it all throughout Jewish history. We see many times where the Catholic Church had tried to overtake Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you know, even later on, we see, you know, this trend starting up. And the thing is that, first of all, there was a lot of animosity 
towards the Greeks, towards the Romans, because of their occupation, because of the fact how they tried to influence Jewish life and to get Jewish people to go and worship the gods that they worshipped in Greece and in Rome, you know, and all of these places. And so, therefore, there was a bad taste in the mouth of the people. So, in terms of this, this was an act of preservation and a statement of preservation. A statement saying that basically we don't want the influence of the Greek-speaking individuals, and so therefore we want to remain a Semitic people. And at this time, the people had lost the way of Hebrew, except for the religious cognoscenti, as well as the rabbis within that of the synagogue, and a lot of the people spoke Aramaic, and the Hellenized Jews spoke Greek or Latin. And so they were worried that this influence would come in that would change the things of Judaism. And language can definitely do that, especially when you go from Semitic to Germanic language. Because of the fact that within that Semitic languages, one word can mean up to five or six different things, which gives us a much more three-dimensional understanding of the Torah, of the Ketuvim, of the Nevi'im, and that of the Brit Hadashah with that of Semitic language. But within that of the Gregorian languages, uh, the, the issue, or the, or the Germanic languages rather, the issue there is that one thing means one thing. And that's why it's wonderful for math, it's wonderful for science, it's wonderful for the classification of animals. But however, in terms of scripture, it flattens the text. And this is why it is that they even say in another section in the Gemara that when the Septuagint was written, it was a much more grievous a sin than that of the golden calf. It was because of this thing, because of the fact that it flattened the text. Now, the thing about it, though, is that theologically we can have these debates. We can have these arguments. But in terms of scholarship, the Greek text helps us out a great deal. Because the Greek will help us in understanding, considering that one thing only means one thing, razor thin, each and every single time. It helps us greatly in being able to understand what was being meant at that time. There's no, well, you know, this word means up to five different things. How would it have been interpreted at this time? And the Aramaic Targumim tried to help out with that, and it did a phenomenal job with that. And then with this, when the Septuagint comes around, we end up going and seeing the way exactly each thing was interpreted at that period in time. That's why, as well, different translations in English that are from different periods of, uh, of history also do the same thing because English as well is a Germanic language. People will often talk about how it is that newer translations like the message tend to be much more um, contemporary. They don't like it because of those things, but also at the same time, it's kind of a sign of the time at the same way of how it is that certain groups of individuals, and these groups being, you know, the, uh, the religious influence of whether they had Baptist translators or Methodist translators or Presbyterian translators or so on and so forth, when they put this text together, you see their theology in those, uh, in those texts during those certain periods of time. 
There were other Bibles as well all throughout history that, you know, you could look to the 1970s. You had the Good News Bible, for instance. And that as well, you kind of understood the theology of those people at, the, at that time and the way that certain things were translated. The same is true with, like, you know, the official Mormon Bibles and the uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness Bibles, as well as Bibles such as, you know, that many people in the Messianic faith use today, which is that of the complete Jewish Bible, for instance. You'll see how it is that, um, the, how David H. Stern has really influenced the Messianic faith in many ways and what the theology is of Stern that has influenced many different people. And so Greek text, in many ways, help us out a great deal in terms of things within that of history and understanding the theology of those times. And so in terms of scholarship, they are an amazing help. And not only that, I personally am an Aramaic primist, okay? And I believe, you know, that the, uh, that the, that the Yonan Codex as well as the Gaboris are the oldest that it is that we have in terms of the New Testament, okay? And, and I am adamant about this. But also, one of the things that you'll notice for those who are watching over here, we have several translations that it is that I use rather often that are translated in the New Testament from Greek texts, okay? And why is this? First of all, it wasn't the Aramaic, sadly, that ended up going to the four corners of the earth that brought people to Yeshua. Instead, it was the Greek text that was able to accomplish this. And this is something that also we can talk about in terms of theology, in terms of the Torah itself. Within the book of Davarim, it goes and talks about the Torah being written in 70 languages. Now, I discussed this on one of the Torah portion teachings uh, last year, in the last Torah portion cycle, that is. And I discussed this and how it wasn't necessarily 70 languages, like, you know, like uh, German, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, English, Spanish, you know, not necessarily like that. What it actually meant there, according to that of Chazel, is to be able to have the Torah in a way that people could understand it, no matter if it was that they were a part of the Semitic-speaking people or whether it is that, uh, you know, uh, a person who was, you know, not grafted into Judaism and Israel in any way, shape, or form would be able to interpret and to understand it. And it is mainly talking about teaching the Torah in that way, in a way to where it is understandable. Now, the Greek was able to do this. The Greek was able to go out, you know, into all of the nations, you know, which is, you know, uh, really shows the perseverance of that of the New Testament and also that of the Greek Septuagint. You know, so it actually serves a served and does serve today an amazing and wonderful purpose. Okay, and so the and we can also see this during the times of the biblical times as well, especially the days of Yeshua. You heard me say that during the times of Yeshua, the people didn't necessarily speak Hebrew. You know, they uh, spoke Aramaic because during the times of the Babylonian exile, the Medo-Persian Empire, and all of these things. They had lost the way of Hebrew, and they, you know, started speaking Aramaic, you know, because that was the influence of the time, was Aramaic. And so, the thing about those, the reason why they were able 
to um, to do the Aramaic so well and to be able to gravitate towards the Aramaic is because of the fact that Aramaic was a Semitic language. But during the time of Yeshua in the synagogues, the Torah would be read and taught within that of Hebrew. And, of course, you know, the traditional prayers as well that we find within that of the, of the Sador. Within Hazel, they say that uh, basically that these are the same prayers that Moshe Rabbeinu would have gone and recited. And so those had to be preserved. So instead of translating those to Aramaic, they kept them as Hebrew and tried to teach the Torah in a way that was the, you know, the way that it is that it would have been taught during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. But the issue is the people didn't understand it. So they had to have an Aramaic interpreter there within that of the synagogue so the people could understand it. Now, very few scholars say that there was actually, you know, somebody there translating it in Greek. We don't find many scholars say that or any evidence of the sort, except for exclusively Greek-speaking congregations that were a part of the Hellenist uh, things. But however, the Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking ones, the ones that would be taught within that of Hebrew and then translated into Aramaic, you know, having the interpreter there, which actually plays into the idea of speaking in tongues, and it being interpreted in the words of Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul. The thing is that we have, uh, uh, you know, um, probably about 10 to 1, we see, of uh, synagogues operating that in that manner, 10 of those to every one Greek-speaking one. So, you know, there were Hellenized Jews, but not quite as many as, you know, you would absolutely actually think. And so, you know, so, so this history of language is very important. This history of textual criticism is very important. Okay? And so, when it comes to that of translations, okay, people always ask me, what is the best translation, Christopher? <laughs> Honestly, when it comes to translation, you know, the, the fact is that when you go from Semitic language to that of the, um, of the of a Gregorian language, you're only going to get about one-fifth of the total literal meaning, okay? Because of the fact that most words can mean up to five or six different things within that of the Semitic language. Okay, and so you know that's something to 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 understand. So various texts are going to be translated from different base texts. Okay, even during the time of the King James version of the Bible, for instance, there were about four hundred Greek and Latin texts. Okay, about four hundred, and some of them were rather new for the time. And so when those things got together, those people got together in that council. And they went and they translated those, you know, the, the King James Bible and all that stuff. Um, they were working with what it is that they have. Now, in today's time, we have somewhere up to about four to 6,000, you know, 10 times more, at least, in the conservative um, estimation of base text than we had during that time. And many of which are older than that of the texts that were used for the King James Bible. You know, uh, many of new many texts have been discovered since that time. They've been able to date back before 
the texts that were used for that particular translation, okay? And so one of the things that you'll see even with that, you know, there's many people who are very much adamantly King James-only individuals. They have to look at their history of the, of, of the translation. First of all, what texts were used? Many people can't tell you what base texts were used to translate this from. They'll just say, well, the Hebrew or the Greek. Well, which one, <laughs> you know? Because there's a vast multitude of those. And also, the thing that we have to understand is that this was a Bible that was commissioned by that of the ruling authority, you know, be that of King James. It was very much a political Bible. And so with that, we will see a lot of the influence of politics within that of the um, King James Bible. Take, take, for instance, one of the issues that the Puritans had was in where the Greek renders a vast majority of the time the word ecclesia, which essentially means assembly. That's what it means. King James said, no, 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 no. We are going to have that rendered to be church, which comes from the um, Greek word circe. Okay? We're, and, and, the, and the thing about this, he was fought with this over and over again. But considering that this was to be the Bible for the Church of England— you know, they ended up caving and saying, okay, you know, and all this stuff. The Puritans didn't, but the translators did, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll just go and translate this to, so that, you know, it seems to go and um, give an acknowledgement to the Church of England and all that stuff, because that's what, you know, that would have been referred to at that time. And so that was a part of that whole history. Now, here's another question I get as well, is what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? There's a lot of people that, you know, are, are very much invested within that of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Dead Sea Scroll projects and so on and so forth. Now, there's a lot of good that comes with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there's also a lot of bad at the same time, okay? Because, and let me explain why this is. First of all, the thing that a lot of people fail to realize, you know, who are novices in looking at biblical texts and all this stuff, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, were throwaway texts. They were ones with issues with them. They were the ones with mistakes in them and all of these things. You really cannot use the Dead Sea Scrolls as a base text. I think the thing that is really um, amazing about them, however, is that when you are able to compare them to older uh, well, you know, ones that were around around the same time. Now, I wouldn't want to say older, but they were around around the same time, such as the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex. When you go and you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then say that it is you have the Leningrad, the um, the or the Leningrad and the Aleppo Codex, and then you had the Targumim, and then you had the uh, the um, um, the Greek Septuagint, and then you had the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls right there in the middle of all of those, you really have a missing piece of the puzzle that helps you with the chronology of thought, helps you with the chronology of text and all those things during that period of history. Okay, so, so it's, it's almost like it's not the most important, but it is an integral piece of the puzzle in many ways. But you have to also be able to pinpoint, okay, this is why this page was taken thrown out, put into the cave because of the fact that here's where that mistake is. 
but also when we look at structure and all of those things, we will a easily be able to pinpoint where those issues are if we have all these other texts right here in front of us. What about the Masoretic text, Christopher? You said the, the, the Masoretic, you know, you use rather often, you know, as a matter of fact, whenever I quote from the Hebrew Tanakh, I will often use the Masoretic text because it's the majority of text, which incorporates both the Aleppo and the Leningrad and tries to harmonize those as well as other late or early texts as well into a later edition that came around around the time of the 6th century. Okay, so we have to understand that, first of all, though it is that the Masoretic may be later 6th century, at the same time, it has its foundation within that of older texts to make sure to put them together into a harmony. So, you know, it's one of those things to where the Masoretic, in many ways, even though it's 6th century, it's very helpful in terms of understanding ancient theology. The same with Targumim. Now, what about the various New Testament texts that are within that of Semitic language? You heard me say that there are over 3,000 Aramaic texts, and a lot of which of those are the Old Testament in terms of Aramaic. Now, we also have about 500 Hebrew uh, manuscripts of the New Testament. The issue, though, is with the Hebrew texts, there are... Um, none of them are before the time of the 14th century, okay? Most of them, if not all of them, are actually translations from the Greek into Hebrew, okay? Such as the Deutelet, such as the Munster, such as the, uh, uh, the Old Syriac, which is actually Aramaic, um, and also um, the uh, Shem Tov as well. These are much later texts, okay? Now, the thing about those, one of, the, one of the ones that I use rather often, you hear me quoting Hebrew from the New Testament in some of my teachings rather often. Now, what I use is Franz Dalages, okay? Here's the Gospels over here, and over here I have the complete um, New Testament in his Hebrew. Now, what Franz Dalage did is he took the, uh, the Greek text a majority of, of those, and what he ended up doing was making a Hebrew rendering of those Greek texts. Now, the reason why it is that I use his and not, say, for instance, the Munster, the Shem Tov, or the, or the Deutelet, or any of those others, is because of the fact that Franz Dalage was honest in what it was he was doing. Many of these others were saying, oh, this is an ancient text that I ended up finding. But however, they ended up having... Nakud that wasn't around until at least the time of the 14th century. Now, what is Nakud? Nakud are the little dots and dashes that it is the end of finding above and below letters. Now, one of the things that helps us in terms of the chronology of documents is that there were a lot of different documents in Semitic language of the Bible that did have Nakud <coughs> during the time of the second century, believe it or not. But the Nakud was a lot different. Instead of being below the letters, a majority of which being below the letters, they would actually be above the letters. And there were three types of Nakud until the kind that it is that we use today was ultimately instituted. And so with script, this also helps us to identify 
when it was that certain texts were written based upon the Nakud that was used and the various scripts as well. There were, you know, uh, scripts have gone and evolved over time. In Aramaic, for instance, we have the Ashuri, we have the Estrangelo, we have the Swadeum, we have the Serta. And even within that of diffuse Hebrew, we have, you know, uh, scripts that have slightly changed throughout periods of times in the known diffuse Hebrew. And so you're able to pinpoint the way that which something was written, as well as the Nakud, to help us with those things. I'll give you a prime example of this. You take, for instance, there was a document that was uh, um, supposedly found by Michael Rood and Nehemiah Gordon last year, okay? And this was supposedly the ancient uh, Hebrew documents of the New Testament, okay? Now, the issue is that anybody who knew Hebrew, as soon as they saw the pictures of this, knew that there was major issues here because of the fact that it had the Nakud underneath of the letters, and it used a 14th century Rashi script, okay, which is commonly known today as Rashi script, okay, which was, you know, the, the, in way, which the way the diffuse Hebrew was rendered at that time. Also, they would notice that there's the certain words there were not in Hebrew, but in 14th century Italian, such as the word for chapter was written in Italian. And so the thing about it, though, is that, you know, they, they promoted this as this great discovery and all of this stuff. And the issue is, well, it was something that has been on the Vatican website for at least 10 years, and they actually said this is a 16th century document in which it is that we ended up making to go and try and witness to Jews. Uh, you know, and, and this had been known for quite some time. And so the thing about those people who don't know these things, they often get, you know, swept up into these things and fooled rather often by, by individuals who are not necessarily so honest. And so one of the things you often end up seeing online are the translation wars. You often see the translation wars taking place, you know. This is the best translation. This is the best one. You should not use this one. You should use this one. And all this stuff, you know, and we see this happening rather often. Now, one of the things I'm going to tell you in terms of whenever it is that you go shopping for a new translation or a new Bible, what you ultimately need to do is that, first of all, realize several different things. That, first of all, if you don't speak the Semitic languages, if you don't read the Semitic languages, if you're not using an interlinear and you have no want to use an interlinear, use several different translations that don't necessarily agree with one another. Because that'll help you to get that, that three-dimensional understanding. One of the things I'll tell you is that many Christian translations, believe it or not, are going to have a lot more scholarship behind them than many of the Hebrew Roots uh, translations do. But the Hebrew Roots translations, they try and do sacred name theology to try and pull people in and all this stuff. And so, you know, it's kind of a psychological thing. Oh, well, you know, the name is rendered this in there. So therefore, it's got to be accurate, you know, and all that stuff. This is a marketing trick. That's all that it is. That is all that it is. It's just a marketing trick. Always make sure to, 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 uh, to see that if a translation has been translated by a single individual or by that of a committee and a group of individuals. Make sure to check out the scholarship of those individuals and if they actually know the languages. 
when it's done by a committee, there are people that are giving each other gut checks and saying, are you really sure that we want to render this word as that as opposed to this? You know, and they will go back and forth and, you know, spend a long time on this. But however, if a single person does it, their own personal bias comes in that goes unchecked and says, okay, I'm just going to render it as this because this will prove my point on this and so on and so forth, you know? And so, you know, so there's no real, um, there's no real gut check there. There's no real thing kind of keeping them in line when it's done by a single individual. So a committee of individuals and putting together a text is much better than a single person doing it. Okay. Another thing that I would encourage you to do is to learn the languages. And many people will say, you know, that's, 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 it's actually not, it's actually not that bad. It's actually a lot of fun. Okay. I've actually uh, completed uh, three different classes on, on the language. I speak it fluently and all that stuff. You guys have heard me read from the Hebrew and from Aramaic, you know, here um, on these, on these teachings. And, you know, the thing about though, is that, you know, a lot of places it charge, a lot of places charge a lot to learn it. But luckily I'm one of the teachers over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute, and you can actually learn the languages for only $15 a month or $40 every quarter or $120 lifetime right over there. And, uh, the thing about though, is that we have probably about 200 videos taking you step by step through each and every single letter, each and every single Nakud, each and every single thing in terms of grammar and structure and all of those things and exercises. And then about a hundred PDFs as well that, you know, have exercises on them, depending upon at which point you're at and also extra information and all that stuff. And it actually becomes a lot of fun because, you know, it kind of really, not only does it help you to understand the Bible more three-dimensionally by looking at the Hebrew and Aramaic text, but also at the same time, it's one of those things to where it is that you're doing something that a good 90% of the Hebrew roots movement and the Messianic faith haven't done. They don't know how to do, as a matter of fact. And so, you know, you taking the time to go and learn these things, you know, it, it kind of helps with your confidence and makes you want to study the Bible more. It kind of, you know, many people who have joined the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute have told me that it kind of, you know, put a fire within them for the Bible again, you know, something that it is that they have lost. Because now they can go and look at that side of the page, and though it is that they may have only, you know, been a part of the Hebrew and Aramaic learning institute for a couple of weeks, they're saying, I'm starting to pick up on things in here now. I'm starting to see, you know, words that I can put together, you know, and all this stuff. And, you know, it, it's really helped people with their, with their confidence in, you know, be able to understand the Bible and to study the Bible and all of those things, which you know, is very, very important, you know? And so these are the things that I, that I will tell, tell, tell you whenever it comes to a, to a translation, first of all, make sure the scholarship's there. That's, that's key. Make sure that as a group of individuals who have actually gone to school, have actually learned the languages, who you can have a conversation with them in those languages, make sure that it's a committee of individuals. And then you can start looking for features that it is that you want. Me personally, I love commentary. I love ancient commentary. I don't like, you know, the 21st century commentary. For instance, the Aramaic English New Testament, love the translation, love the fact that it's an interlinear with the Estrangela, what the, the second edition that I have here is. The thing I don't like about it is the commentary because it's very much a 21st century commentary. So I say, you know, the commentary is garbage, but however, the translation and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 
interlinear is great. Uh, Gutnik Homish, I love that one for the same reason. I love the commentary within that one as well. Plus, I have the Targumim on one side in the translation, and then I have the Masoretic Hebrew on the other side. Stone Edition Tanakh does the same thing. I love the uh, Dalich Hebrew Gospels because I get the interlinear there. I love Dalich's complete work in just the Hebrew right there. Um, the Jewish, uh, uh, the uh, Jewish annotated New Testament's wonderful. The um, the one I got over here on the bottom, the Complete Jewish Study Bible, is a great Bible for individuals who are coming into the Messianic faith, the Lapid Jewish faith, or the Hebrew Roots movement, and you know they want a little bit of commentary, but they don't want to be, you know, overflowing with that. Uh, this is the perfect Bible for somebody who is new. You know, because it's going to help to guard them from some of the really goofy theologies that are out there. And so that's another great one. Some of you may just want, you know, you know, just the uh, the uh, translations and all of that stuff. And believe it or not, many Christian Bibles are honestly best for that, such as the ESV, the NASB, the RSV, you know, or any other that it is that you are comfortable with. Now, another question that ultimately comes up is, the whole thing between literal translation and paraphrase. The fact is that when you're getting into Semitic language and you're translating from Semitic language, ultimately because of different grammar structures, you're going to have a level of paraphrase in some way, shape, or form. Okay, because if you were to do it literally, then the sentences are not going to make very much sense. So there is very much a little bit of paraphrase in any translation. You know, it's unavoidable in all honesty. I had seen, uh, you know, I have great respect for John Piper, but I heard John Piper talking about how he doesn't like the Amplified Bible because it's a paraphrase. And the thing about it, though, is that I was sitting there saying to myself, well, Mr. Piper, you should know this. Uh, and I'm sure he does, but any Bible, in all honesty, is a paraphrase at some form. It depends upon how much it is that it's paraphrased. You know, you take, for instance, you know, going and uh, taking, for instance, I mentioned the message before. And, you know, the message is a great Bible for, you know, people who are maybe teenagers who are not connecting with the Bible. And it helps get them going. OK, so I'm going to at least give it that. But um, they were um, it, it, there, there's a me there's a part in the message Bible where it says, uh, and Jesus said, you're not in the driver's seat. I am. I'm sitting there going, that's a little bit of a. That's a little bit, maybe too much of a paraphrase, possibly, you know, but, you know, hey, to each, to each their own. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope and I pray that this has been helpful to you, and I want to wish each and every single one of you Shalom Racha, peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic, or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewandAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time, and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step -step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month. No way you are!